This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hi, everyone. This is Elise, the Managing Director of Pantsuit Politics. We worked hard this spring to plan out exciting, interesting content to bring you over the summer. Today's episode is one of the ones I have been most excited about since Sarah recorded it back in March. I've just been itching for us to get this into your feeds and for your minds to be as blown as mine has been by the work of our guest. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institute and leads the Boys and Men Project. His research focuses on boys and men, inequality, and social mobility. In 2022, he published his book, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. If you were anywhere near Sarah in the months after she read this book, you heard about it. And with good reason. Reeves' work is truly fascinating, and I know you are going to gain as much from this conversation as I did. I'm still early in my journey as a boy mom, so listening to Sarah and Richard talk about their experience parenting boys in the modern era and the concerns they have for their boys was particularly helpful to me as I think about how to raise my own son. However, don't skip this one if you aren't a parent or the parent of a boy. This is not a conversation about parenting. This is a conversation about our culture and how it's shaping a huge portion of our population. It was just as valuable to me as the wife of a man and the daughter of a man and the friend of men. You know men. You have men in your life. And the findings of this research are rippling throughout our society in major ways. You will be able to see that as you listen to this conversation. This affects all of us. So without further ado, we are delighted to share this conversation between Sarah and Richard Reeves with you. We can't wait to hear what you all think. Thank you so much for listening. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. 
free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Richard Reeves, welcome to Fancy Politics. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for writing this book. Now, you might not know this if Fred, our mutual friend at Brookings, didn't warn you. I cry a lot on this podcast, so I might tear up a little bit when I thank you for writing this book as the mother of three boys. Like, it was incredibly valuable to me. At this point, our audience might already be tired of hearing about this book because <laughs> I talk about it so much. Um, but it really, really was helpful to me in naming a lot of things I felt like I saw. And I know that that's how this book started for you, was not as a policy wonk, but was as a, we share this in common, you are the father of three boys. Right. I have this view that all scholarship is at least a little bit autobiographical. Like, why do you end up studying that subject? All good scholarship. I think so. (laughs) And then some scholars will sort of pretend that somehow this subject area or they could just sort of dropped on them through, you know, from on high. And that's not true. Something about it is intertwined with your personality. And in this case, it was so obvious that looking at the world through my son's eyes, they're all in their 20s now, and I've raised them in the UK and the US, it just was an education for me. And made me reflect a lot more on my own experience. And I think it was partly because of that that I started just looking more at the data. So I tend to say, well, I wonder what the gender split on that is, or how how are boys doing on that measure? Or have you broken that by gender? And just and that then led me to a lot of data points that sort of empirically underpin the book. But but I, I agree that there's there's no hard line here between empiricism and emotion. Mm. Uh, and I think it's just, you just have to be hands above the table about that and say, look, here's where I'm coming from. Uh, so people don't, I think if you've got some sort of autobiographical element to your work and you're not upfront about it, then people will always wonder. So yep. I'm hands above the table. Yeah, I, I'm I'm worried about my boys. They're all doing great, fortunately. But but I, the world that they're in is so different, mm-hmm. even to the world I was in, let alone my, my father, that it's right. astonishing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was a women's studies minor. Like I came out of this. I'm an only girl. I'm an only child. And so I had a very defined worldview about how I thought gender worked in the world. And then I had these three boys. And fun fact, my first son, they told me was a girl in two different ultrasounds. Um, So I already had this sort of (laughs) We had that with one of ours. It's weird, isn't it? We had exactly the same thing. We'd actually named him. He was going to be Gabby. Love it. Had a shower, (laughs) got some dresses. And I'll be honest, I had a lot of disappointment. I wanted a girl because I thought I knew what that meant. I thought I knew what that looked like. And it was very intimidating to me, I think, because probably subconsciously I had already observed some of these things of the difficulties of raising boys. And I think I had what you named very early, which is we individualize the problems with boys and we systemize the problems we see with girls. Tell us, tell us how you sort of started to name that. Yeah, I, I just I observed that, and I observed it across the political spectrum. This is not a left-right thing, which is there was a, a reflexive tendency to say if if a boy is struggling or a man is struggling to say, well, kind of, well, what's wrong with him? To some extent, right? You know, he's, he's he's lazy. He's got ADD. He's you know whatever. And it doesn't have to be you know the level of judgment is applied differently. And and I guess for those on the left, it tended to be more about 
well, <laughs> almost to treat boys as defective girls. Yes. And to just say, like, why can't you be more like your sister? Like, why are you so restless? Why can't you focus? Why can't you plan? Why don't you think about the future? And there, there are good biological reasons for, for those differences. Um, but nonetheless, it was all about, like, what's wrong with my son? Like, why, why is he struggling in school? Not, why is the school not serving my son very well? And then on the other side of the aisle, there has been a tendency in recent years to sort of say, well, men are being emasculated, that the problem yeah. is they're not masculine enough and that they just need to kind of man up again and be real men again. And that will be the solution. But what they share beneath those very stark differences, they do share an individualistic notion of the problem, right? The problem yeah. is, is of men to be, we need to fix men one at a time. And either they're too masculine or not masculine enough, depending on who you're talking to. But there wasn't enough attention to questions like, is the education system working for men? Has the labor market become less friendly to men? Is our system of family law one that's being fair to fathers as well as to mothers, et cetera? Those are much more boring questions, but they are about structures and laws and policies. And especially on the left, there's a tendency to look for structural problems, right? I think it's one of the things that comes instinctively to people on the center left, but with one exception, which is when it comes yep. to boys and men. Yeah. And I, I think it's so heartbreaking. We had an expert in mental health, a listener to our show, and she was talking about how boys are punished with therapy. Like there's something wrong with you. So we need to go to therapy because you're not focusing and because you're too hyper. And you know what I think you name so beautifully. And I, I was thinking about this when this last teen health mental health survey came out, which is especially when we're going to start talking about the education system and how girls and boys operate inside of it. We're just really talking about two different problems because the teen girls are also not okay within that system. That's what we saw in that survey. And I think it's so tempting to say, well, we just want them to get good grades and then they'll thrive inside the education system and that'll fix it. But I think you see further out in higher education, it's more complicated than that. And you definitely see it when the girls who are quote unquote succeeding inside the education system just come down with a whole other set of mental health challenges. It's like, you guys, we need to go back to the drawing room. Like this is the way we individualize this, I think, just presents in different kinds of mental health challenges, particularly when you're talking about the education system and teenagers. Yeah. So I agree with the way you frame that, which is that there are young, young men and young women, boys and girls are struggling in different ways mm -hmm. uh, and to some extent for different reasons. But but what's interesting, and I hear, if you look at the work of Jonathan Haidt, and he has just a great new sub stack out actually on this, on why it's particularly liberal girls uh, who are mm. really seeing this kind of spike in mental health problems. And it, interestingly, liberal boys as well. And that's something I'm very interested in digging f further into. But but when, when we're looking at like what's happening with the girls with this incredible spike, for example, in self-reported sadness and so on. I mean, just a, it's like a 10 percentage point jump yes, in two huge. years. Yeah. following an eight percentage point jump so it's it's gone up by some, something like from 40 percent to 57 percent in four years of girls who are incapacitated for at least two years by these feelings and so okay so what happened right um over that time period and i'm pretty convinced by the evidence that social media does have mm -hmm. a big part to play here not least because girls consume social media very differently to boys. They are the ones who are on TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. They relate to the, that there's much more social media can be weaponized against girls yep. in a way that's very different against boys. And so there's all this discussion now in Congress about age of consent, regulating social media. And so we we're immediately saying, look, what is it about our environment? What is it about our culture? 
our system, not the school system where the girls seem to be doing okay in terms of grades, but like our culture, like how is mm-hmm. it, what are we doing? What are we doing to these girls that's making them feel this way? That's our instinctive reflexive way of thinking about it to, to look for reasons why they're suffering. Yep. I think that's the right reflex, but we don't always do, do that with boys. boys yep. We don't always say, look, the boys are really suffering. So if, if including among high school age boys, four times more likely to commit suicide than girls failing on all kinds of measures of education, massive friendship recession among boys, much more isolation, obviously kind of potential issues around addiction to different kinds of technology, including pornography and video games, et cetera. So it's playing out differently. But sometimes there's a tendency to say, what are we doing to our girls to make them feel this way? Mm -hmm. And then to say, what's wrong with our boys that they feel this way? If they weren't so toxic and they weren't bottling up their Mm -hmm. feelings so much and they could just learn to express themselves, et cetera, they'd be okay. And so even in that sort of teen mental health crisis space, I see an asymmetry in our instinctive reaction to it, right? And there's this old saying that kind of, you know, when girls are struggling, there's something wrong with society. When boys are struggling, there's something wrong with boys. Yeah, And and I, I still think we're a bit stuck in that mindset. No, I totally agree. I thought your point about we talk about toxic masculinity, but we don't talk about toxic femininity. Although I, I'm happy to report on a Facebook post yesterday, I had a friend of mine use the term toxic femininity to describe, um, yes, the Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Chris Rock. She was saying like this idea, and I want to get into this about particularly gendered racial discrimination she kind of described her reaction, this idea like you can never do anything wrong is toxic femininity and to like claim victimhood. And I thought, and this is a black woman who made this post. And I thought, that is not what I expected to see today on Facebook, but I think it's a move in the right direction. Like to say like there are toxic aspects of femininity. And I think we do this thing of like, well, that means you're criticizing being a woman. And we think, well, we have this whole history of discrimination. We can't do that. We're opening it up to the to the people who have, you know, traditionally been discriminated against and we're creating more ways for them to be discriminated against. And so there is this orientation, I think, particularly among the left, that perpetuates that reaction in ways and we're missing things, some really obvious things when it comes to the education system. You know, you argue in your book um, pretty convincingly that at the very least we should start boys later. I have a lot of regret about not holding my middle son back. He was born in June. But in my mind, it's because redshirting was like this perpetuation of toxic masculinity. We're holding them back because they can play sports better. That was what I understood redshirting yeah. to be. Right? Yeah, because like, you were, were thinking about athletic yes, redshirting as opposed that's to the academic. Por- yeah. That was the orientation, right? And so in my mind, I was like avoiding toxic masculinity by like putting him in school and letting him go. And now I'm like... Man, he's so young. He's just so young. Yeah, well, we had a similar regret with our, our middle son where we sort of half started him late. It was, you know, we is the worst of all worlds where mm. we, we started him halfway through the year because we couldn't get this school to agree and my wife and I weren't in full agreement about it. And it's one of my big regrets that we should have just gone all the way because that in some ways may have been the worst of all worlds. And again, he was June baby, pretty young for his year and just wasn't ready and just all you know all our instincts and especially my wife's instincts were like no he's just not ready and yeah the system and to some extent me were just like well this is just how it works right yeah um, yep. i actually really dislike the term toxic masculinity and i think rather than start to say okay so there also can be toxic femininity it's true that we don't use that term. it's just to get away from this idea of toxicity altogether. Yes, right. you're right. Because it's just, I think a better way to, so I sometimes talk about mature masculinity as opposed to immature masculinity or whatever. And the way I think about this is that there are 
there are certain traits and attributes, ways of being in the world that on average are more associated with men than women. Of course, the distributions overlap, right? So the average doesn't mean that all women are like this and all men are like that. But there are some differences like risk-taking, sex drive, uh, potential for aggression, people versus things, et cetera. And they, they overlap to different degrees. But but I think rather than saying like there's something about each of those traits could either be a good or a bad thing, depending on how it's expressed, mm. depending on whether it's balanced by other traits, right? So the tendency of women to be more agreeable, for example, in other words, to care a bit more what people think about them, to be more attentive to people's emotional reactions to them, to be less likely to want to upset people and offend them and so on, right? The, women are a little bit higher on that personality tra- on average, right? Is that a good or a bad thing? Now, it sounds like a good thing, but actually... If you're too agreeable, you never you never state what you want. You never actually push yourself out in the world, and and actually not upsetting someone is more important than getting justice from someone, etc. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. And so, same with men and risk. Right? Is it is it good or bad that boys and men have a higher appetite tendency towards risk? Is that good? Yes. Is it bad? Yes. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> right? right. And so, rather than saying these things are intrinsically good or bad, the the real conversation is. How do we find ways to express them in ways that are kind of more pro-social than others rather than trying to somehow, I don't know, have a sort of rite of exorcism where we can sort right. of suck all the masculinity out of the men? <laughs> right. and, we don't t- tend to, and we don't tend to do that for femininity. We don't tend to say femininity is bad. What we tend to do is to say, look, it shouldn't be determinative. It shouldn't, and you shouldn't treat women differently just because they're more like this, right? And there are plenty of women who don't fit that mold. And But I, I actually think one of the great, triumphs of the women's movement was actually to pursue feminism without destroying femininity mm. without saying femininity is the problem now there's a moment there were moments right yeah um i don't know how old you might is it rude to ask how old you are before no, you, I not at all i'm 41 okay so i'm trying to think whether you can remember the 80s but um a little you bit will, a little bit right but you probably never had to wear shoulder pads sir. no i was too young but yes i know exactly what you're talking about in the in the in the the ties the limp ties yes. of the blouse yes yes yes, yes. And so there was this period women had to wear they literally weren't allowed to look like women yeah. right they had to and they had to do assertiveness training so they were kind of etc cetera, etc cetera. and so was this there was this risk for a period that in order to get equality women were basically going to have to become quasi men or at mm-hmm. least pretend. And then and then enough women just went, no, I'm not doing yeah. that. So I don't want to be like them. I want to be like yeah. me, but I also want to be able to do that job, right? Right. Um, which was exactly the right impulse. And so we, we, we managed to honor femininity without that becoming in any way an obstacle to women's progress. We need to, I think, pay the same courtesy to men and to masculinity. Well, one of the most helpful things I read, you know, in my parenting journey, really trying to think through the benefits of both approaches, masculine and feminine approaches, was Jennifer Senior's book, All Joy, No Fun. And she talks about, like, yeah, the men are less invested and the women could learn from that. Like, they could take some of the pressure off themselves by watching the fathers and saying, they don't care and maybe I shouldn't either. Maybe everything isn't the end of the world when it comes to this child. Like, let's ease some of the pressure on that. And I've learned that from my husband, for sure. And I think that that balance where you're saying, like, we're not trying to elevate one. We're not trying to eliminate the other. We're acknowledging the inherent strengths. And it's that self-awareness that I think is really valuable. And we need more cultural conversation when it comes to masculinity. You know, what <laughs> one time we were in Michigan and on this port, and there was a big warning sign about the 
the tide, and there were two boys that had died. And I pulled mine over, and I said, what do these two people have in common? And they're like, they're teenage boys. And I said, right. So I want you to be aware of that instinct. I don't want you to quash it. That's why we're in Boy Scouts. I think Boy Scouts is an excellent way to channel that need to do some risk, to go out there, to, like, sleep in the dark by yourself. I don't care. But, like, I want you to be aware of that, you know, in the same way that if I had daughters, I would say, hey, be aware of that need to please. Be aware of that desire. Yes. To to, to, be to to be liked, right? So let's just, let's own that. Let's just be aware of it. Yep. And be aware of it and recognize them, particularly on something like social media. Like that's why this social media stuff is, has been so brutal for girls, I think, because it does tap into that, you know, the psychology of being liked and shamed and mean girls and best friend and stuff. So I agree. And I think that's why, A, it was a historic mistake for the Boy Scouts to go co-ed. Mm. and rebrand themselves BSA. We still have Girl Scouts, by the way, as a separate girl-only organization, but actually Boy Scouts has has gone co-ed. But also, I agree that's a great example of the the risk thing. And on a personal level, like I did, I became a scout leader and went away to do some training. I was also in scouts all the way through. And this, this, this moment in the training really stuck with me. It was like, look, we do all this training before we go hiking and do all this and mountaineering and stuff. And then they told us these stories of these scouts that had died right mountaineering or doing all these things um and they're and they're basically saying look the leaders did everything right they they did all the risk assessment did everything right and still these boys died right because if you do adventurous stuff there's risk some Mm -hmm. people are going to die and we have got you we're you're insured you're back we have got your back if something happens to a scout when you're here we have got you right we are here for you because they're trying to say Look, you do everything you can, but by definition, you can't eliminate that risk, right? And so every year, if scouting is being done correctly, then every year, tragically, a small number of scouts will die doing a scouting activity, right? Mm. If you don't want anybody to die or get hurt, then stay in the hall and just do like paper mache or something like whatever, right? Just yeah. like don't or play d- don't Minecraft. Go out, That's but... why they play Minecraft because they can go out and craft their own world and be independent and take on risk in a way that their parents. And then we complain because they're sitting and they want to be on these games all the time. <laughs> exactly, and then, and we also complain that they're not very good at learning the skills of assessing risk and kind of when yeah. take it and when not. But on the other hand, the other thing I would say. I don't know how you'll feel about this, but maybe I would, you know, show to your sons is the the work of the Carnegie Hero Awards for civilians. I came across this thanks to Carol Hooven and quote. I was so incredibly touched by that portion of your book because I thought the thing I always argue when because I want to get into this, like sort of in the new conversation around gender and non-binary and dropping these sort of very cultural understandings of gender, which I'm specifically naming separate from sex is mm-hmm. we are different. Why do men commit all the crime? But I'm doing what I like what I'm accusing other people of doing. I'm taking just that one version of that, right? Just the sort of manifestation of that that is a cultural negative. And I thought the way you talked about the risk men take often in saving other people's lives. I was thinking about that just two days ago with that flight when those men tackled that guy who was going after the flight attendant. And I thought, that's who rushed. That's who rushed forward without thinking about it. Same with the young guy that Biden actually called out in his um, State of the Union who tackled that gunman, et cetera. And also, like, if you want to get really kind of visceral about this, 
what you see is that in kind of mass shooting situations, those tragic mm-hmm. situations, the shooter is almost always male. Right. It's also true that if there is somebody using their body to protect somebody else against the bullets, they're all almost always male. Yep. There's exception is mothers sometimes will do it for their children, but like then you'll very often see that the kind of the guys are kind of trying, like literally getting them in the way. And the the Carnegie Civilian Hero Awards, very quiet organization, basically rewards the people who risk or give their own lives to save the lives of a stranger. It's not their job. So it's not they're not being paid to do it, and it's not their family. Um, so it's it's the young men uh, who run into a burning building to save someone, who dive into a river to save someone, and a lot of them lose their own lives in the process, and then they get this mm. um, hero award. It's a very very understated operation. Um, they're very hard even to get on the phone. These kind of folks, but I do know that they have looked hard for women. Oh, that's uh, interesting. And they just don't find very many women who run into burning buildings to save strangers. I mean, heck, Cory Booker's done it like twice. (laughs) He's a United States senator. He should get two civilian heroes. He should get two civilian heroes. And so, look, on the one hand, like 95% of violent crime is committed by men, right? So men do have more potential for aggression, and they're more likely to take risks around that for reasons that are probably ancestral. Uh, at the same time, violent crime rates, with the exception of the last couple of years, have really dropped in recent decades. So, and they're very much lower in, say, Singapore than Malaysia. And th- th- so, so the idea that that culture doesn't matter is crazy, right? Obviously, right. whether that tendency to violence is expressed is depends on the culture. And in fact, I just came across this. I don't think it was the same CDC survey. It might be naturally, but there's a showing that the number of high schoolers who'd been in a physical fight has halved in the last 20 years. Wow. Like down to like 20 years. And I've noticed that with my own sons, right? Yeah. They they have not got into physical fights at school. Mm-hmm. And and I'm honestly like, really? <laughs> you know, I feel like I, I feel like I brawled my way through school. Yeah. And I just take a step back and I think, wow, that's so great. Yeah. That the culture has changed in such a way that they haven't had to learn to use their fists. Right. And there would yeah. be some versions of some people would be saying, well, that's the problem in society. You know, you know, men aren't punching each other enough anymore right. or whatever. And, I, and I'm like, what a wonderful world we live in where, that my sons haven't had to learn how to fight. Right. Yep. Great. Well, but I think what's happened is, though, that we've we've done that. We've really tried to bring some awareness to the more negative manifestations of masculinity. We're doing the work there. But I think the best argument in your book is that. Yeah, but we didn't get rid of patriarchy. We didn't get rid of an organization in our in our culture and society that sort of has this vision of masculinity. We worked on some of the negative aspects, but we didn't replace it with anything positive. So we're telling men, you should really still be the main provider when the economy changed around them. We're telling them you should succeed at education when the education system is really not built for their brain development. As you're writing this, you do this so masterfully, but I know it had to be difficult to piece apart some of this cultural from biological. I thought the parts you write about, like hormones and how those play out in men and women differently. Not only was I impressed by your, you know, skill at talking about that, but just the bravery, because that is a very, very touchy subject, particularly on the left, particularly with our new conversations around gender and sex. Yeah, and it's against these weird things where it becomes something of self-fulfilling prophecy that anybody in their right mind 
doesn't go near these subjects. Yep. And what that means is the only people going near these subjects are people who are not in their right mind. Right. Jordan <laughs> Peterson. Or Lord. <laughs> or take your pick. And yep. I actually mean Andrew Tate is like right. Jordan Peterson out, out of the water. And Jordan Peterson is a he's an intellectual guy, right? Well, I want you to know that my friend's son, who was intrigued by Jordan Peterson and reading his book, we got him your book and he likes it a lot better. So there you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um <laughs> Well, I also just like there's a there's a tone to these things. So what one of the things that happens is that people get angry mm-hmm. because they just feel like their side's not being taken seriously, that these issues are being ignored. And I see that in a lot of men who end up in this space is that they kind of they, you know they get angry. And, and honestly, sometimes I can I can understand why because you, there are you know you can see these examples of just these injustices or these unfairnesses or these double standards. But it's an incredibly unattractive thing to see a guy getting angry on behalf of of men yes. and i approach this genuinely much more in sadness than anger what what i see is just a lot of unnecessary human suffering mm-hmm. um and among women and girls for all kinds of reasons that uh, we can talk about and uh, i think talked about a lot um and among a lot of boys and men that are perhaps not talked about enough um and that's just just straightforwardly bad for society if we have like you know boys and men struggling and one of the moments that sort of stopped me in my tracks along the route to this this book was discovering i like i knew that the suicide rates were higher among men mm. i didn't know they were four times higher among men and even today i'm amazed by how many people say are you sure that's right because i saw a new york times piece that girls were having more suicidal thoughts or i said suicidal it's an increase yeah it's also an increase not a doubling or quadrupling Correct. And it's still this massive gender gap. And, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about the gender gaps the other way around. But yeah, four times higher. But then there's this work by Fiona Shand, this Australian research, with this really interesting analysis, a textual analysis of the words that men use to describe themselves in their last notes or posts or whatever before suicide. And the two most commonly used words by men to describe themselves before suicide were useless and worthless. And I thought, actually, of course, this is a particular group, but if as a society we've genuinely managed to make any of our people feel that way, mm-hmm. that's a colossal failure. Yeah. And at that point, it's not a question of race or class or gender. It's just like people suffering. Mm-hmm. And let's figure out why they're suffering and see if we can't help them. And and that's absolutely where I come from on this. I don't have an axe to grind. It's just like, you know, for God's sake, if we're allowing our ideological sensitivities or our worries about the tripwires about to get us in the way of speaking truth in a way that could alleviate, even by a small amount, genuine human suffering, then shame on us. Yeah. If we're allowing fear of the reaction from some people from really raising the subject to stop us from, from calling it as we see it. And what I see is a lot of human suffering. And by the way, that's why people like Jordan Peterson and others get such massive audiences because yep. he just says, yeah, I hear you. You're suffering. And Donald Trump. Uh, yes. I mean, just play into that pain. Yeah. It's not that it's made up pain. It's real pain. You probably saw. I mean, I am was 100% tearing up. I have a yeah, half-brother that too. died by suicide, and it was I'm a sorry. classic death of despair just on... Every you looked that up, and if there was a checkbox, he checked every single one. He was underemployed, he was undereducated, he was suffering with alcoholism. 
He had had a child. He was not in a relationship with that woman. So he didn't, I don't think he had a good model of fatherhood. And even my own father at one point during the 2016 election, when we were talking about all this, because he's a Trump supporter, he said on a phone with me, I'll never forget it. He said, I'm, I still have worth. And I said to him, I said, hey, I don't, I don't think you're worthless. But that's what he felt, even for me. And it just broke my heart. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And if you care deeply about issues of race or poverty, well, that just compounds exactly what we're talking about. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pansy. Right after I finished your book, I was reading Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos and Community. And you should read it. He has a section in there about exactly what you talk about inside the black community, that we have a very patriarchal idea and a matriarchal reality. Mm. He talks about that in his book. Um, He is naming that. He is naming this. And like, he's not great. Listen, he was a human person at a certain point in time. He's not great on gender. Like he never even uses a female pronoun in the book, basically. Um, But he names that. He says, like, the idea in Black Men's Head is that it is hyper-masculine. And the reality, basically, is that the women are the leaders in our community. And that is hard. And I think that's particularly true in lower-income communities that we have, like, this hyper-masculine idea that pushes back against some liberal ideas that are improvements, like we said, the sort of self-awareness and— you know, even toxic masculinity. Like, we have this idea that pushes up against that, and the reality is, like, no one can meet that idea inside the the confounds of certain, like, these economic, educational, mental health, addiction. Like, it's just, of course, those are the words people are using before they're taking their own lives. Yeah, and I, the, the way I increasingly think about this is in terms of like a, a social script almost. It's like, what's mm-hmm. the, the script that we follow? And the, the good news is that these scripts have become much freer um, than they were in the past. But nonetheless, I, I I see us tearing up the scripts that my parents had of the dad breadwinner, provider, mum, stay home carer, which is unquestioned, right? Just wasn't, there was, wasn't a discussion about that. It was just like, this was the way it was. And we tore up those scripts and gave women a very powerful new script which is economic independence empowerment you go girl etc very liberating very powerful and it's been very effective and it's wonderful i love it yeah we also tore up the old script for men which is yeah you're going to be a breadwinner and provider and your role in society is going to be very clearly delineated by that providing and kind of protecting role we tore that up no that's not true anymore and didn't replace it and then the result is that without a script, you know, men are left to improvise. Yeah. It's haphazard. It's difficult. They have no idea what to do. As this uh, young man said to Peggy Orenstein in her terrific book, Boys and Sex, said, she asked all these young men, what's good about being a boy? Or what's good about being a man? None of them could answer. And a number of them said, and one in particular said, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've no, I can't think of anything, actually. You hear a lot about what's wrong mm. with guys. And I I fear that for understandable reasons, we have presented boys and men with a long list of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't look at this. Don't, et cetera. Not very many do's because do we need them? You know, it's not clear you're going to be needed anymore, by the way, mm. because, you know, the women are kicking their butts in the in the classroom, doing pretty well in the labor market. So, so it's like, well, they're not quite sure they're going to be needed. Um, so kind of figure it out, basically. And we've just left them adrift in ways that I think are profoundly damaging to their sense of self, their sense of worth, their sense of value in, in the society. And, and I've really changed my mind about things that previously I might have thought of as good or even innocuous, like the idea that the future is female, mm. right? The slogan, the future is female, which is plastered across my kids' high school walls, by the way. And, and it, 
And I just started looking at it in a different way and just sort of thinking, you know, because I had all the right feminist credentials and everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. The future's female. And then it's like, wait, wait, what am I, what are my sons supposed to think mm-hmm. when they look at that? And they see the girls killing them in the class, but like, what is it? What message does it send to, to one sex to say that the future is of the other sex? Well, if we said the future's male, well, we wouldn't think that was a great message to our girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I, and, it, and it may have been it had its moment, it had its time, but that time has passed. And now, now we've got to we've got to recalibrate our mindsets for the reality of the current situation rather than fifty years ago. Well, and again, back to the same point I made with teen girls in the education system. It's not like American women are like, or women in the participating in the workforce all over the world are like, this is paradise. We did it. Utopia. You know, there's this great moment in the TV series about Phyllis Schlafly, Mrs. America. Uh, Kate Blanchett plays Phyllis Schlafly. And yeah, she, I love that series. Oh, it's so good. And there's this moment where she was like, I don't want this. Then I'll have to do both. I'll have to do all the home and all the work. And my friends and I are like, yeah, that's the moment. That's it. That's what happened. Um, You know, it's like it's imbalanced. And I love all your stuff about, you know, we did a good job of inviting women into STEM. Let's invite men into heal into these health and education and learning environments. These because my favorite part that I've been quoting to everyone, because all everybody talks about in my community in a lot of places is the staffing shortages with nurses and teachers. When you're like, well, we're not going to fix it with just half the population. You're not going to fix a staffing shortage with half the population. Um, And so pushing, you know, men and giving them another vision of what this could look like and what their careers could look like and, you know, their participation in the economy, I think is so important, so important. And it's part of this expansive model, too. I think this idea of expansion of roles and of possibilities mm-hmm. is really, I think that the, that's really what the women's movement was great at doing, right? It was just expansive. We're just going to add to the roles. We're not really going to take roles away. Yeah. I used to always say, if you want to vacuum in your pearls, go forth and prosper. Don't tell me I have to. I don't care. All these trad wife peoples on TikTok, go. I don't care. Great. You don't want to go to the gym by yourself? Go with your husband. I really don't care. Right. This the glorious thing about a more equal and a more liberal society is that we do get those choices. And that so we've multiplied the ways in which you can be a woman. Right? I'm not saying that hasn't come with its attendant challenges and risks, and you've talked about that. But meanwhile, actually, I sometimes think we've actually kind of we've reduced the number of ways in which to be a man. Just when it needed to expand as the role mm-hmm. of women into provider it needed actually so fewer and fewer men in those caring professions, for example. So I have this acronym HEAL, which is the opposite of STEM. And it's health, education, administration, and literacy. So it is teaching, nursing, social work, psychology, et cetera, and those jobs that require more of those skills, which I'm slightly shocked to discover that most of those professions are getting more gender segregated, mm. not less. So in the other direction, we're seeing medicine, law, science, you know, engineering, et cetera, getting less gender segregated, not to say that all of them are where we need them to be. But wow, done a pretty good job. The other side, massive gender segregation. And it's happened quite quickly. So even since like, 19, back, if you go back to 1980, the gender composition of psychology, social work, and elementary and middle school teaching was roughly 50-50. A bit higher, more men psychologists, more like 40% of social workers and, and teachers, elementary and middle school teachers were men. Now, it's 20%. It's halved. And it's dropping like a stone in areas like psychology. Among psychologists under the age of 30, 5% are men. 
Dang. Psychology, psychology has just become a female profession. Like in my <sighs> lifetime, it didn't used to be, it is. And then we wonder, could that be a reason why it's harder for men to mm-hmm. seek mental health care? Is it a great idea for all our school counselors to be female? Um, maybe not. And and again, you wouldn't want it the other way around for sure. But And with boys feeling divested in the education system and never having a teacher that's male? The lack of male teachers, again, I, and it's interesting because I, I've yet to find anybody that will seriously oppose the idea that it would be a good idea to get more male teachers. It's not that there aren't some issues that get raised, but it's now 24% of K-12 teachers are men, 10% of elementary school teachers, and 3% of early years educators are male. And, you know, this is a great line for the women's movement. You can't be it if you can't see it. And mm-hmm. this, just this, the message that we're sending around appropriate roles is a big problem, I think. But just for the boy, the evidence that it's good for boys, especially in subjects like English, yeah. where they're really struggling to have a male teacher. And it was definitely true for me. Like I had a, I had an English teacher in high school who was a Korean war veteran and part-time bus driver, a real grizzled old guy. And he would have a class we were co-ed but he'd have a class of 16 year old mostly working class kids including the boys in tears reading 17th century love poetry now try doing that if you're not a guy right i just like he was able and he and it, it opened my eyes to literature and to the beauty of words and so on because i was like well if he's into it right oh it's not a girly thing Right. And so just that and the same in exactly the same way, by the way, having women teachers in STEM subjects is awesome for girls. And again, it's also awesome for girls to have an English professor that's doing that. Like the the grizzled male English professor, like what the three professors I think in our first book or the three teachers I had, one was my high school English professor who's a man. And it was good for me, too. Like if it's good for the boys, it's good for the girl. Like that diversity of of seeing what's possible and seeing like different gendered perspectives is valuable. And I think, you know, speaking to this and trying to name it, and then you have this great section of the book where you th- you talk about the mistakes on the right and how they want to turn back the clock. That stuff's easy to write about. But you also have a chapter on the left and the mistakes we make. And I again, it's not just even avoiding it. It's the way we talk about it. I mean, I do feel like I can I can hear the emails. My co-host calls it the chorus of 10,000 voices. I can hear the emails being written right now as we're having this conversation. But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? As if you are naming suffering around boys, you don't care around the suffering of girls. Or, you know, my, my younger cousins who are basically really interested in this idea that like just gender is a con- my my 13 year old son gender is a construct all of this is a construct we're harming ourselves by putting ourselves in boxes at all let's just you know move forward in a way where there is you know a, a spectrum of availability to everyone which i'm not necessarily opposed to i think you know easing into a more gendered a spectrum of behavior is always beneficial in a multicultural democracy because we have a lot of humans and there is always a spectrum of behavior but like how did you work through that yeah well the first thing is that uh, so i agree and yeah the emails are being written and uh, <laughs> i'm getting plenty of those but maybe maybe many fewer than you might fear well, that makes you feel better because i i think the appetite for a good faith yes. conversation about these issues is enormous Mm -hmm. uh i'm so pleased by the fact that you know if you frame it in the right way 
yeah. you just say, look, this is in no way to say there aren't issues facing girls. It's and women. not a zero sum game. We're not it's picking not winners and losers here. Correct. I know we are but, often in society. I get that. But like, we yes. don't have to frame every conversation well, we, that way. We should be honest about where that where that is the case. And so, yes. for example, I've written elsewhere well, I've written for Brookings about the case for quotas to get more women into U.S. politics, right? Mm. The the underrepresentation of women in U.S. politics is pretty shocking, frankly. Yep. And lots of, you know, the, when when Mexico is like, and other, you know, are just way ahead of us in terms of gender representation. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's like 25% um, still. And obviously Biden's done better with his cabinet, but still no female president. And all... And it's like, what is happening in US politics? We really need some sharper interventions, I think, to kind of to get more women in. Now, is that zero sum? Yes, because there are only so many of those slots available. Mm-hmm. Does it justify strong in this, you know, strong action? I think yes, because those are literally the people passing the laws mm-hmm. that affect us. In a representative democracy, they should be representative. So I think there's a huge problem of the gender imbalance at the top of US society, especially in politics. Now, I'm going to talk about how most men in America today earn less than most men in America did in 1979. Mm. Now I'm going to talk about the fact that male suicide rates have risen by 25%. Now I'm going to talk about the fact that the single biggest risk factor for dropping out of college is being male. Now I'm going to talk about the fact that 15% of young men now say they don't have anyone, a close friend, five times as many as a few decades ago. Can I can I talk about that stuff now? Mm-hmm. Right, because Because we can hold two thoughts in our head at right. the same time. <laughs> we are not creatures of such simplicity that we're only allowed to have one thought or be on the side of one group within society rather than just looking at both, looking saying, well, they're struggling with this and they're struggling with this and let's help with them with that. And in some ways, make it a bit more normal. And my frustration with some of the people in sort of professional politics, right? This is not normal people it's not normies <laughs> it, it's is is just this zero sum framing yeah. i mean i think for example the the white house has a gender policy council which i criticized briefly in the book which replaced the council on women and girls but it doesn't do anything for the gender gaps facing boys literally nothing you read the whole strategy you read everything i've done they've just done an update report i've spoken to some of the people involved in it so it's like nothing and so they have an entirely, their view is gender equals women, gender inequality is women, mm. and that's for the right, that's for the conservatives to talk about. And my, I'm saying to them, you are leaving so much capital on the table. Yep. You are just playing into the hands of the people on the other side who say you don't care about boys and men. It yep. would be so easy to have a male mental health strategy to look at what's happening. You know, if we have a bigger gap on US colleges, college campuses today gender gap than we did in 1972 when title IX was passed it's just the other it's the other way around so we passed title IX. men were 13 percentage points more likely to get a degree than women today women are 15 percentage points more likely than men to get a college degree so we have slightly wider than title IX level gender gap in colleges just the other way around but the only mention of that in the white house gender policy council strategy is to point out the unfairness of the fact that women have more college debt than men Mm. Come it's on! Oh, so annoying! I like come up. First of all, that's like that's just empirically stupid. It's like it's like men complaining that they pay more income tax. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's just it's 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 just like this. So there's this kind of intellectual just stupidity to it, but it's also just politically. It's like really, 
Like, why do you think that is? Oh, it's because there's this gigantic gender gap in terms of who's going to college. And they think and the I risk is so high too, and it's not. Strategy is dumb because I always think of that. There's a bell hooks quote where she says, she talks about the difficulty of dealing with race versus gender. And she's like, it's one thing to think differently about the people who live on the other side of town. It's differently to think differently about the person that sits across the table from you. Now, that's the inherent challenge, but it's also the inherent opportunity, right? Like a lot of the things when we talk about systemic issues in the United States, we're talking about them, right? We're talking about them. But not when we're talking about boys and girls. Everybody has a member of the opposite sex in their life. Everybody. Almost everybody. Yeah. Everybody, right? I think yeah. it'd be yeah. hard, you'd be hard-pressed, <laughs> right? Really. Um, yeah, and so, like, that's the opportunity, right? It's like you don't have to be afraid because everyone – I don't have – I have a lot of male friends. I have a lot of female friends. I have a lot of parents. I don't have a parent in my life who has not struggled with ADHD, like either with a nephew or with their own son, like that that statistics you have where it's like 25% of boys in elementary school are being treated for ADHD. And it's like, that's that's really high. Again, it's like the teen mental health. Like if everyone is struggling, then it's definitely not an individual struggle. We're doing something wrong. Don't we want different outcomes? Like I want different outcomes for my boys. Also, I don't want them to go to a college where they're like, one out of every four students is boys. Not because I think that that's like, it's wrong to be a lot around women, but I think that's hard on everybody. I think that's yes. setting everybody up to have a difficult experience. It's like, it's an opportunity here. We're all affected it by is. it. And that's in just the same way that one of the most powerful messages to support the, the women's movement was saying, don't you want your daughter to have all the same opportunities and chances to flourish as your son? Like I have, you know, plenty of very conservative people in my family where they all work, et cetera. They want their daughters to succeed. And mm -hmm. if they if they discover that their wife is being discriminated against on pay grounds in the workplace or harassed or anything in the workplace, they are not going to be happy about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So so like the idea that like people don't want women to flourish, but but it's partly because it's their daughter, their wife, their right. sister right, who's being discriminated against or harassed or in some way like made to feel lesser because she's a woman, right? Same the other way around. The number of, in some ways, like I, my, I think the consumers of my work who I kind of get here the most from are probably left-leaning mums of sons. Mm. He present. Right? <laughs> 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 who are just like, yeah, yeah, okay. If I don't have to give up my prior commitments and I don't have to start frothing at the mouth, to care about boys and men, right, and become one of them, quote unquote, then I'm here for that conversation because I'm really worried about my son and I don't yeah. think the school system's working. And maybe if we're medicating one in four, maybe that suggests the system's not working for them. Yep. Like maybe rather than rather than treating the inability of the boys to flourish in the system as a problem with them, to be medicalized and then treated uh with drugs maybe instead something about the setup right <laughs> and again i think some of this like it's like one, one in four boys across k-12 have been just have been diagnosed with some form of developmental disability mm. back to your and like the adhd thing I, I think it's crazy to imagine honestly that if you have a group where one in four of them have been described as disabled developmentally 
that's that. Come on. Sure, but not if you think they're just broken girls, right? Like not, not, if, not if you think they're defective girls. Not if, if that's if you, if you think they're just defective girls, and that makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? I mean, and it that's the thing. Yes. One of the most impactful conversations we had around the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, I said, like, I refuse to believe these beautiful creatures in my house are just rapists waiting to happen. Like, I will not. I will not. No, absolutely not. And that's not to say that, like, the reality of violence with men is not a real one. But, like, this sense of, like, they're just they're just broken and all we can do is put barriers around them. No, no, absolutely not. I don't feel that way about my sons. I don't feel that way about my husband, you know. <laughs> and that's why, like, I'm the way I call myself the most is, like, at least he's in their life, like, presenting a different version of masculinity. But, like, that shouldn't be the only option is— you know, make sure you have this very privileged, you know, and luck, <laughs> like luck meeting the right person to to shepherd your boys through this. Although I do think your your call at the end for like a different modern reimagining of fatherhood that gives men something to lean into instead of feeling like they're failing constantly is really part of the solution. I and mean, it's back to this like expansion of roles, right? And, and expanding the, the, you know, the, the great thing about some of the changes we've seen in recent years is it gives men much more space to do more fathering um, than, than my father was able to, for example. Mm-hmm. So I was able to be the stay-at-home dad for quite a few years. And that's only possible because of the changes in the labor market, which meant that my wife was able to be, she could earn enough, right, for us to do that. And we always agreed that we weren't going to have two crazy jobs at the same time because we basically wanted to raise our kids. And we kind of took it in turns and like it it was messy, but we kind of figured it out. But it was a great gift to me, right, to be able to just basically be dad for a few years. And that's when I became a scout leader and I was very involved in the community and all that stuff. It was great. Loved it slowed my career trajectory down a little bit because that's kind of inevitable. Was it worth it? Absolutely. So you have this opportunity to do more fathering. Meanwhile, there's actually a growing problem of fatherlessness. Mm -hmm. So it's going the wrong way. So we see fewer, fewer fathers in some cases. It usually varies by class. But again, one of the, one of the stats that makes you go, wait, what? And double check it and then have someone else check it for you and then Mm. go to the author and say, are you sure? And then is the following that within six years of their parents separating, a third of American children never see their father again. Oh my God. Mm. And I'm like, are you sure? I double check, went back to it. I just re- I just wrote that again for another Brookings piece. And I had, I had my boss double check it again. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm like, wait, what? Uh, and I think there's cultural stuff here around like fathers mattering in in a way that goes beyond the old breadwinner model. There's a danger of like I was I was at an event and I laid out the evidence for how fathers are really good for sons and daughters um, in terms of their mental health and all kinds of things. And and someone said they asked the question nicely. They said, isn't saying that dads matter in ways that are distinct to mothers, although overlapping, distinct, isn't that heteronormative? Right. You're applying a heteronormative framework, which is this idea of the binary. And I said, well, look, that's the evidence as I see it. And if the price I have to pay for pointing out the positive impact of fathers on their kids' lives is to be accused of being heteronormative, I'll pay it. Yeah. Okay. You know, if that's right, if that if, if that does make me heteronormative, okay. Because I think the alternative is saying, well, dads don't really matter. Mm. 
it's not only bad for kids. And here, I think I really got this wrong in the book, actually. It's something I really, like, if I could go back and rewrite the stuff on fatherhood. Good. That was my last question. So perfect. I, I would rewrite it. And uh, and I've had this comment for a lot of people, and it's just felt to me like I really missed an opportunity here, the one that I'd like to address in the future is, I, I essentially wrote about the importance of fathers for kids. Mm. and I treated fatherhood as a means to an end and the end was kids flourishing doing well at school not getting into trouble etc and the evidence for that is very strong so dads matter for their kids but I've had a number of men communicate with me and they just have said to me you know actually being a dad matters to dads as well and you've basically said look we matter because of all this social science showing that you know whatever. but but actually the identity of being a father what that means. Maybe you don't have a job or you're struggling in the labor market. Maybe you're struggling with all right. kinds of other, other problems in your life. Like you know, maybe you've lost your faith and you don't go to church anymore. Maybe you are surrounded by a culture that doesn't feel very amenable to you, et cetera. But you know what? You're still a dad. And I actually met this guy the other day. He was an Uber driver in Charlotte. And I asked what brought him here. And he said, my daughter, my ex moved up here with my daughter and I didn't have legal rights at that point. So she thought that by moving from Florida to Charlotte, that was going to shake me off. But I just moved my whole life here. I've started working as an Uber driver because I'm not leaving my daughter. Oh, I'm going to, wow. so, and I'm like, and and it was clearly like his, as a dad, that was going to be part of his identity. And so if I could rewrite that section and I apologize that I didn't do this, especially to the dads, which is look, dads, you, you don't matter just because you're good for your kids <laughs> and it's good for society and the rest of it. But, but you have actually it's good for you. Yeah. And that's a, a noble and important role. And yeah. even if I didn't have good social science to say that fathers matters for kids, you know what, you're still a dad and you're still precious yeah. to us because of that. That role is so important. So I, I I would definitely write that slightly differently now in a way that was more sensitive to the the, the moral value of just being a dad and what yeah. that means and how it anchors you in a way that- And again, it's like, else. We're not saying it's positive because it's the only good outcome a child could have and that a child can't have a good outcome in a lesbian partnership. Like, it's just so silly the way we formulate these. Like, they're not mutually exclusive. You can say, hold both things. I see that in my own father's life. He, You know, he moved far away when I was really little, but he was an excellent long-distance father. And he was very active and remains active in my, you know, twin half-brother's life. And I think I see that. When the economy shook him or he got divorced or he did leave, you know, didn't have an active church, like that was important to him. He was and continues to be a very active and involved father. And I thought what you were going to say is that they're not just – and here I'm going to get it teared up again. Like it's not just when you're a kid. You know, it matters to have a father as an adult, right? Like yes. it's not just like you're done. Like and then Sometimes you can just call more. your mom and you're fine. Like you just also need – that figure as you get older as well. Yeah, I think that the the honoring of of dads and fathers at all stages is just is just huge, right? To in any way dishonor them by suggesting that they're kind of superfluous mm -hmm. to requirements, surplus mm -hmm. to requirements. Don't need them anymore. I actually had this conversation with a lesbian couple after I'd been accused of being heteronormative, uh, who, like almost every lesbian couple I know, work incredibly hard to have very strong male figures right. in their kids' lives, especially if they have mm -hmm. sons, right? So they're kind of like social fathers. So again, it's this point, you can do it in different ways. But And I said, look, why, why do you make such a big deal as a godfather in this case of like, 
of why he's around all the time. He's deeply involved in your, in your kids' lives. I said, like, why do you do that? And they said, because it's really important that they have, like, they don't have a biological dad in their lives, but it's very important that they have dad-like figures, like mm-hmm. that they have men who, who are kind of there for them, role modeling for them, complementing kind of what we're doing. And because they're quite pretty feminist i said well that's very heteronormative (laughs) (laughs) it's funny my co-host always says we overcorrect and i just think we've done so much overcorrection in the you know sort of in the women's rights movement and in a lot of areas surrounding gender and biological sex and i think we see the manifestations in that suffering and i think it is so important to name it and say, we're not trying to go back. We're not trying to erase anything. We're just trying to get more on a path where everyone can flourish. That's the goal. Reduce suffering, increase flourishing. And if we see suffering, then it's time to recalibrate. And I think that your book is such important work with regards to that recalibration. I thank you so much for writing it. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you for this conversation. Now tell me, before we leave the work, you said you're working on a project with boys and men at Brookings. So tell us about that quickly. Yeah. So I'm staying out on this limb, right? I'm on it. I might as well stay on it. <laughs> you're like, and, I'm here. Uh, I'm here now. I, you know, <laughs> I sort of walk through the fire. I might as well keep walking. Uh, but also because there is so much appetite for from people to say, okay, so what do I do about it? And mm-hmm. and the areas I really want to focus on are fatherhood and the way that the legal system, especially for unmarried fathers, can really yeah. get in the way of them being involved. And I want to work more on the issue that you talked about a few minutes ago around getting more men into these these caring professions, these heal jobs, psychology, nursing, uh, teaching, especially. I'm doing some more empirical work on that and trying to trying to push forward on on both of those fronts. I think there's lots of other work to do as well. But in terms of making a policy change, that feels to be where I can make the most difference at this point. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for your work. Thanks again. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. 
that's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you to all of you for listening. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode. Next week on Monday is Juneteenth, a federal holiday. So we're going to be sharing our five things you need to know about Juneteenth. And then on Friday, I can't wait for you to hear an episode re-recorded on the 10-year anniversary of the Edward Snowden leaks. So make sure and check that out next week. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.